This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 4 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today is Part 3 in our series on Harv Bennett, where we're looking at his work as a television creator, uh, focusing on his second television show, The Invisible Man. I guess before we get started, we could just get into this, something that we were talking about. You know, we received some feedback uh, about um, our our choice of of Harv Bennett uh, shows, and and why we decided to go with this particular route, and yeah. how this means that we are not doing the Six Million Dollar Man or the Bionic Woman, which are two of his most famous shows, and yeah. um, I guess the answer to that is you know we definitely thought about that, and the problem with him is he's done too much stuff. You know, right, and and you know, sort of like uh, something that we've always sort of strived to do with this show is not pick and choose and not uh, use any sort of uh, like Max always makes fun of me because I'm like, we need to do everything, and he's like, yeah, because we can't like exercise, you know, um, <laughs> any sort of uh, you know common thinking or anything like that. You know, we can't use our best judgment on these things, right. <laughs> But but the thing about that is like uh, you know kind of the main reason for doing this show is to discover what we don't know you know to look at the undiscovered country to find the undiscovered country I like that that's a good poll Mike yeah. well done well Thanks. done and you know lots of times we don't even know what that is you know there are times for sure where we're like oh my god we got to do Ron Moore because Battlestar Galactica is the best show ever but there's times where it's like well Harv Bennett. What do we know about Harv Bennett? Well, he's done a lot of cool Star Trek movies, so let's see what else he did. And we're discovering things at the same time that the audience, uh, our theoretical audience, is discovering things. So, you know, um, Harv Bennett was a tricky one because it's like, well, what did he do in Star Trek? Well, his big contribution was he was a producer, but he was also a writer as well. And, you know, it made sense, you know, just I think we naturally always gravitate towards sort of the more creative functions. Not to say that producing isn't creative, but producing can mean a lot of things in a lot of uh, situations. And if you see like, well, this person created this show or wrote this show, then, you know, that suggests an active involvement on their part. You know? Right, and and anything somebody creates is going to uh, give something away about their tendencies more than a producing job. Like you know, there are people that throw their everything into producing, but at the same time, there are people where you know producing is they're just fulfilling the requirements of the of the job, and they're not doing as much steering of something. Whereas something that somebody has a hand in creating, they have a they're going to have a much more personal stake, so that's going to reveal even more about their tendencies than anything else. Yeah, and in the case of Harv Bennett, you know, it's not like he did just a couple things, you know. I mean, right. he's he's done tons of stuff. He had a career which spanned like three or four decades, and, you know, we, we really did need to sort of pick and choose unless we wanted to spend 
like literally like three or four months just on <laughs> Harv Bennett. As it is, we're yeah. span- spending like two months on Harv Bennett, and that's a pretty long time. It's a good chunk. <laughs> Especially since we haven't personally seen any of these shows. So yeah. because of that, we decided to do something which was manageable. And I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, we need to pick things that we can actually cover, things that actually exist. And yeah. with a lot of these guys, especially these original series guys, that's hard because they were making shows before things like DVD. And, you know, not all these things are available. Yeah, and a lot of these things shouldn't be available on DVD. <laughs> I, I'm going to point that out. We suffer for you guys sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> um, but so so because of that, we decided with Harv Bennett, you know, we're going to to do... Uh, the shows that he created or developed. It was a nice small number, and we figured it would showcase his producing t- talents as well as his writing talents and be sort of all-encompassing. And uh, and because of that, $6 million man and bionic woman didn't make the cut. You know, and, and looking at it, I mean, yes, he produced $6 million man for like 100 episodes and everything. He didn't write a single episode of that show which is kind of crazy when you think about it, considering the fact that he was like a writing producer. He wrote two episodes of Bionic Woman. He wrote a two-parter. I think it's called The Bionic Dog, which I want to see based on the title. But well, yes. That, you know, bionic <laughs> dogs have been, you know, you go to the original Battlestar Galactica, they've been on people's minds. Okay, now I don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so because of that we were just like, okay, let's let's, you know, take take one for the team there, I guess, and not watch 6 million dollar man. Uh, it so, would be very easy to to actually have an episode where all we do is just a fuse about how great, you know, the memories that 6 million dollar man brings back too. I mean, everybody Yeah. You know, we're we're not going to contribute anything to a conversation about 6 million dollar man either that hasn't been said already because I don't think that there's a, a person walking the earth, especially that saw it, uh, whether it was first run or in its you know first pass at syndication, that didn't just you know, every you know, nah, 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 like everybody gets it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen the show, and I, and I wait a minute, it. what? I know I've never. You just seen blew it. my whole theory out of the water. That's not fair, Mike. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I know what it is. I know what it is. But I would have nothing to add to the conversation either. You know, because uh, I haven't seen okay. it. You know, well, you yeah, all right. You got to remedy that at the very least. You got to make a promise to our audience right now that you will watch at least a few episodes of Six Million Dollar Man, and at some point in the future, not the immediate future, but at some point in the future, you let us know what you thought. I will do that, and I'll tell you why I'll do that, and it's going to make you cringe probably so hard. I'm holding but, on. <laughs> I'm going to do that because. Um, I'm interested in a, uh, well, you know, at one point they were going to do a $6 million man movie. Yes. Like in the mid nineties. Yeah. And at the time, uh, this was, you know, probably like 96 or something like that. 90, 96, 97. And the person who they hired to write the script for that movie was Kevin Smith. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> and and no. what they've done through the magic of, you know, um <laughs> well, comic books is they've now like 20 years later dug up that script and of course 
converted it into a comic book, made, made a comic book out of it. And they wonder why the comic book industry is dying. <laughs> so okay. I want to see that. I want to read that because I want to see, you know, what this early Kevin Smith movie, which I've heard about since I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, would have been like. And now I have a nosebleed. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank Sorry. you so much. So anyway, we apologize for not doing $6 million man, but we have the next best thing to $6 million man. This week's uh, episode is going to be on the invisible man. Is uh, it really the next best thing, Mike? I don't I'm know. not entirely sure about that. I don't know. I mean, um, well, it'll be interesting to hear what you have to, to, to say about this, because I don't know. Our, <laughs> our opinions, I don't think, are definitely not uh, of the same strength. Let's put it that way. Yes, probably not. Uh, every so often, I'll saunter in. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll do a callback to Festival in Cannes, or Cannes, or however the hell you pronounce that town's name. And, I actually uh, looked it up. I, I looked it up because right now it's going on right now, and I'm like, I'm sick and tired of not knowing. <laughs> I've always been. I told. I was been told by my dad it was one thing, but everyone else says the other thing. So I went on to one of those things where you can like play, yeah. you know, like a little, and it is Cannes. All right, Festival in Cannes then was a terrible movie that I trashed on <laughs> iTunes. My review's still up there, and That's good. Uh, yeah, and I will uh, the only review, and I will say that um, the Invisible Man. I do have a strong opinion about. I I don't think it was very good. I really don't. Okay, all right. Well, this is a show which aired in 1975. Uh, it only lasted for well one season, half a season technically. Uh, it was like a summer series. Uh, it, it lasted 12 episodes. It was co-created by uh, Bennett and Stephen Bochco, uh, who is a legend in television, having created things like, uh, well, NYPD Blue, I guess, yeah. is the big one. But I think he also did, what, like Hill Street Blues and stuff like that? Yes. Um, well, well, now his new show is Murder in the First, right? Uh, but he's done everything. L.A. Law, I mean, everything. The list goes on and on with him. Yeah, TV uh, institution. Yeah, and this was like the second show that he had ever done. And uh, it was, well, the second show that uh, um, Bennett had ever done, and the two of them teamed up, and, and I really get the impression that uh, Bochco was the showrunner here based on the episodes that he wrote and stuff like that. It's based on uh, the novel by H.G. Wells. Wells, not Ellison. Yeah. Mission Impossible 3 reference. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it, they, they obviously took some liberties uh, since the book was written in 1897 and this one was written in 1975. They yes. had to update it for, for modern times. It stars uh, Dave McCallum, who I've never heard of this guy before. I, I've seen him in other stuff. Um, he he was one of those guys that was, uh, I guess you would call him B-level, where it was like you would see him and you'd be like, oh, that guy. But he was never the draw of a show, except, it, of course, in this case. Yeah, I wasn't sure because on the back of the DVD, it says, like, a must-have for all fans of The Invisible Man and all fans of Dave McCallum. And I'm like, Really? Like, is that, I mean, <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> okay, cool. Well, good I, for I'm not, him. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not taking anything away from the guy uh, because I have no problem with his acting or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, I, I was unaware that there was such a following for him. I really was. Yeah, but good for him, you know? Yeah. 
Hey, why not? He's got amazing hair. <laughs> yes, um, he does. So, do you want to give sort of a uh, a, a breakdown of of what the the premise of this show is? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was really actually trying to think this through. If somebody asked me as briefly as possible to describe this show, I would say it's the Incredible Hulk, but with visibility, and he doesn't he doesn't wreck things; he fixes things. So, but there is still very much an Incredible Hulk element to it. He's a scientist, you know, going where angels fear to tread to work on something that's not meant for human consumption. And so, of course, he experiments on himself. It leads to bad things that he can't reverse or fix. And uh, it leads to weekly adventures where he has to use his special gift to get people out of a jam or to right a wrong or bring blah, 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 blah. So there is very much an Incredible Hulk type of mentality to it. Yeah, and in some ways, I guess it would, from what I understand, since I've never seen it, be somewhat similar to the premise of Six Million Dollar Man as well, right? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Six Million Dollar Man was a test pilot who crashes and gets rebuilt and then goes on weekly adventures. Yeah, okay, so yeah, I, there you go. I guess that was kind of a thing in the 70s, right? Weekly adventures were very important in the 1970s. It yeah. held us together as a nation during the Cold War. <laughs> And, you know, we, we both watched the pilot, and then we both watched uh, individual episodes after the pilot. Uh, yeah. But um, the pilot, from what I understand, was uh, slightly different from the rest of the series in that it's, well, for one thing, setting up the whole premise. And, yeah. you know, he's he's trying to make a transporter is what he's trying to do. Yes. And <laughs> he fails, but in the process creates invisibility. And then, you know, his whole thing is he doesn't want the military to use it, you know, which I thought was kind of an interesting idea um, and an interesting sort of theme to have running through this uh, at this point in time and everything. Uh, sort of the the idea of striving for something uh, bigger and better than, you know, using technology as, um, you know, a form yeah. of, of weaponry. Yeah, but keep in mind that it's also created during the... the <clears throat> very post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, like people didn't trust the military or the government uh, yeah. in the 1970s. Uh, it, you know, <laughs> I wonder what the people from then would think now. And, <laughs> but th there was very much, it was very much in informed by that mentality of, you know, government and military were, all, were always going to take something good and pure and turn it into, you know, I mean, honestly, that's really sort of a scientific... Uh, theme throughout all of science fiction mm -hmm. is, you know, in the 50s, the scientists were blamed, and then it sort of evolved over time that the scientists were noble, but the military was misusing their research. And, you know, that, so I think it's informed by that. I mean, when you think about it, that's actually what's going on in Star Trek too. you know? Sure. Genesis. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. The scientists have that exact argument. Yeah. So, so that, that first pilot, um, I thought... I personally thought that it wasn't that bad. I mean, I, I didn't think it was, um, you know, riveting or anything like that. But I thought that they were setting up something kind of cool. And the idea that, you know, by the end of this, the guy is invisible through, you know, technology gone awry. And uh, the, the end result is him trying to get his his visibility back 
while uh, and and what he needs to do in order to to do that you know kind of like team up with with the the people who he doesn't necessarily trust in order to accomplish this goal and i don't know well before we go on to to the regular series what did you think about that uh i i'm not going to lie the the pilot the pilot was better than what i watched of the series afterward i'll give you that uh it it was more cogent it was more thoughtful but it was still not if i watch that pilot you know transport myself magically back in time and i'm this age back then i would have not i would have not watched another episode after the pilot i would have said yeah okay you know it's kind of an interesting concept but there's nothing about it in my opinion that makes you say, oh, wow, I got to follow this guy around every week and figure out what's going to happen. There, it has very, it, it's not very compelling. I, I really don't think so. I mean, I would agree with that. You know, I mean, if, if you were to ask me like, okay, am I going to watch the rest of the episodes? The answer is no, I don't think so. Because I don't really see any indication of them getting better. And like, the, it wasn't like a, a, a tremendously big hook or anything like that. But when I kind of look at it as like something where it's like, you know, well, how how is this? Like almost looking at it like a movie, I'm like, well, it wasn't terrible. You know, it wasn't bad. There are certainly worse movies out there. Well, <laughs> that kind I, of thing. Like a TV movie of the week. Yeah. I, I could see that. It's definitely better than um, Dirk Benedict in So, mm. you know, that was, you know, for anybody that remembers that one, you know, it's a better TV movie than that. Yeah, I didn't see it, but I remember it. I remember it being on the Sci-Fi Channel all the time. Oh. Probably right after The Invisible Man aired, honestly. <laughs> Probably so. Yeah, I don't know. TV, it's always hard for me to sort of wrap my head around its quality because a lot of it is sort of like, how compelling is it? You know, how much do I want to go on to the next thing? And it's it's hard sometimes, you know, but uh, I don't know, you know. This one definitely not that compelling. No, although you know who the the, and I know it's not the same actress. It couldn't be, but um, his wife. You know who she kept reminding me of? Who's that? The mom from Boogie Nights. She kept reminding me of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah no. It, I, I can see what you mean. It, it it wasn't the same woman. I I know she was in. I think she's like a Broadway actress. And I I will point out that there is another Star Trek connection. In the pilot, because yeah. the inventor of transparent aluminum is in the episode. So I, I, when I saw him, who and he meets a rather spectacularly weird end, um, like I, I wondered if his relationship with Bennett from this episode got him the part in Star Trek Four. I, I mean, I no, yeah, nothing I, to go on with that. So I, I, I thought the same thing. I mean, it's quite quite possible, quite likely, actually. You know, I mean. I, and that guy is—he's like sort of a veteran actor who's been in a lot of uh, television and stuff like that from that time period. But yeah, I, and the thing that I kept on thinking was like, he's been working for companies who have been developing <laughs> invisible <Yeah>. technologies <laughs> for like a decade now. Finally, Scotty comes along and like, here's the answer, and he's like, oh yeah, you know. <laughs> so, well, we have to work on it now to see if we have uh, a, co- a movie a movie universe continuity for him 
Mm-hmm. Like, is he is he like quantum leaping through all of these different situations with new Maybe. technologies? You never know. You never know. Um, it's weird. In the sorry, this is kind of tangential, but in the novelization for Star Trek Four, yeah, uh, they actually change it. You know, where in in the the movie, you know, Bones pulls Scotty off to the side and is like, "Aren't you worried about changing history?" And Scotty's like, why? Who's to say he didn't invent the thing, you know? In the book, they actually change it where, you know, Bones asks him that, and Scotty says, don't you know who that is? That's the guy who invented it. So it was like, oh, he's, he's, you know, this is the thing. I'm so glad they did it the way they did it in the movie (laughs) because it always annoys me when people from the future seem to have, like, every possible historical fact stored somewhere in their brain. Yeah. Scotty's much more human in the uh, in the way that it was executed on film than in the novelization. Then that's true, but I can see him being a transparent aluminum nerd. You know. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So <laughs> well argued, Mike. Well argued. <laughs> I don't know. It was that. It's the only two things I remember from Star Trek Four is the novelization was that, and uh, Spock gets drunk off of a, a York peppermint patty. So. Who is it written by? Who is the novelization written by? I want to say Vonda McIntyre, but no, I could be I'm wrong. out. No, no. Not a big not, fan? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> not going to read that novelization. Not okay. going to happen. All right, fair enough. I could be wrong. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I'll have to look it up. So uh, after the pilot, um, they kind of changed the tone a little bit, uh, changed a few things here and there, and uh, made it more into a sort of weekly adventure thing. Uh, the tone became lighter and, uh, instead of, you know, sort of, I would say begrudgingly working for this agency or this company, uh, they, they became, you know, just agents for them, you know, sold out to the man. Yeah. And they're like, well, you know, I got to figure this out and everything, but while I'm figuring it out, I mean, I'll just go on adventures and stuff. You got to pay a mortgage. I mean, you know, that's what you really, maybe it's all a metaphor for what happened to the hippies. Mm -hmm. Initially, they're fighting the military industrial complex, and then they realize they like to have the nice things, and they want to keep that two-bedroom house in the suburbs. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, part of it is like, you know, I mean, I don't know, it it seems like a somewhat natural extension. I mean, he seemed like kind of a happy-go-lucky guy, and, you know, he's working with his wife, and that their whole relationship is very... I was like, wow, they, could they get away with doing this in the 70s? You know, because there was like a lot of like sexual innuendo and stuff yeah. like that where they're like, hey, let's go back over to my place and, you know, do some stuff. Or even the very last line of the pilot where, you know, he's like, come on, let's go home. And she's like, but you're invisible. And he's like, it doesn't matter in the dark, you know. Yeah. It's all the well, same in the dark. It's part of the sexual liberation <laughs> movement. We're talking Studio 54 era, man. I guess so, but you didn't really see that on TV that much, did you? Uh, no. I, you know what? Honestly, I don't think you did, but I know that we had progressed past the uh, separate bedrooms in, in... I know that we had progressed past the separate beds in the marital bedroom by the mm-hmm. 70s. So it's definitely post-sexual revolution. So, you know... Maybe well, I mean, it it's not risque, like but... it's not like this was like extremely raunchy stuff or anything like that. It was still tamer than what we find in like Avengers now or whatever. But what time slot did it air in? 
I have no idea. Well, see, yeah. that would in, that would inform too uh, yeah. how raunchy they would have gotten. So yeah. the 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 amount of raunchiness feels like feels like prime time raunchiness. Feels yeah. like pre ten o'clock. Yeah, I guess I can see that. But yeah, the 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 later episodes were a bit lighter in tone. Now, the one that you watched, uh, what what was going on in that? Uh, I don't remember the title. I'm sorry, uh, but it was about he breaks into prison because the cleaning lady um, informs them that her son is a good boy who's in prison, but uh, she knows that he doesn't deserve to be in there. Going on that word alone, he breaks into prison and forges his own documents to appear like he belongs there under an assumed identity and befriends the guy who is actually there as an agent of somebody to bust up a drug ring that the warden is running. Uh, It's really, you know, when you think about a lot of plot for an hour long show and, uh, uh, but and the guy is there in prison and then they help each other. And of course they wind up, you know, winning everything in the end. But it is to speak to the, the switch in tone, like the end, the closing shot of it is he's talking, the, the agent is talking to his mother and he's saying, Oh ma, you know, I'll never lie to you again. You know, now I'm a, an agent for the health inspection agency and I can't, you know, that's why I can't blow my cover and stuff like that. And the three principals are walking away and they all turn around facing the camera and go, health inspector and he pops back in and goes shh don't say anything it's my new cover and then he leaves and you have the shot of the three principles frozen it is it is so 180 degrees different from any seriousness that the pilot had yeah that does sound bizarre it is yeah uh the 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 episode that i saw like it's not as goofy but it is kind of like morally questionable well for one thing like it starts off you know and like he's in his lab like the very first scene he's in his lab with his wife at work and he's invisible and she's not and they're just doing their thing and then like they get a call and they're like the boss wants to see us and he's like okay um let me put on you know this shirt and then he like puts on a sweater and then she like grabs the mask from the side to put yeah. the mask on his head so that you can see his face and everything. And then she's like, "You better put on some pants too." You know, he's he's weird about that. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm going to." Pants are such a burden. <laughs> but like the thing that I was thinking even before that, like when the thing starts off and it's like, "Oh, look, he's invisible." I was thinking like, "Why is he naked?" <laughs> like he's at work and he's like you know what i'm just gonna take off all my clothes yeah, no, it, because it, you know it's, it's easier that way it's true there there's actually like a, you know something i thought about because there's a, a scene that i'm thinking of specifically where he's like i'm gonna break into prison and he starts taking his clothes off and he's like completely you know obviously naked would you want to sit in the chair after him right yeah, or even would he want to sit? Like they kept on like cutting to like chairs that he was sitting in or something. I'm like, I wouldn't sit on that chair when I was wearing pants, let alone, <laughs> you know. But whatever, I guess you're not supposed to think about that stuff. <laughs> like, did he avoid leather? 
That would make sense. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <Can you? laughs> okay, see, this goes down a whole horrible road at this point. Now I'm just going to stop. <laughs> but, like, in this episode that I watched, you know, like, they need to do whatever. It doesn't matter what the plot is. But, like, the whole thing is, like, in order to do this, they need to win a bunch of money at a casino. So, you know, the joke is, like, his wife is terrible at gambling. And he's like, I need you to win. And she's like, but you know I'm terrible. And he's like, don't worry about it. So then, like, she goes to, like, the roulette table. And then she goes to the craps table. And, you know, she keeps on winning. She wins, like, you know, $300,000. And, you know, like, at one point, you know, he's like, go over here. Do this. Do this thing. You know, whatever. And she's like, where are you? There's people all around me. I don't know where you're at. And he's like, I'm on the table. (laughs) And, and, you know, like he was like basically, you know, doing stuff, whatever. But like at the same time, like I kept on thinking like logically, like they're basically saying like he's invisible. So now he can do whatever he wants. But like she's literally rolling dice. So like what is he there being like, oh, shit. And now turning it, you know, or something. I mean, like how does that work? I don't know. There's no, there's nothing practical about that. But at the same time, you have to think this actually speaks, I think, to the uh, the low quality of the show. If I'm sitting there breaking down, like when I'm watching him breaking into prison, and I'm sitting there, I'm watching a show about an invisible dude going around on adventures, and I'm breaking down his tactics, breaking into prison. That show is doing something wrong because mm-hmm. I'm not sitting there saying oh, wow, the invisible dude is breaking into prison. I'm analyzing his tactics and saying, oh, well, that's just unrealistic. Like, yeah. there's, a whole, there's a whole thing that is just not happening that should happen. I, I will say that I was impressed during the pilot uh, about the with the level of uh, attention that they they've, um, gave to establishing the rules of the invisible stuff. You know, because it's like, okay, he's invisible. Well, then what about, you know, the fact that he's wearing clothes and now the clothes are invisible too, you know, then and then like they inject him with serum. So what is he going to become invisible or going to become visible, but his clothes aren't and everything. And what about, you know, the fact that he's dripping blood, but then he's drinking something. And like they actually address all of those issues and they're like, yeah. here are the rules of invisibility. And I'm like, wow, I... Did not expect a show like this to go through that much effort. Well, know? this is this is a big question, and obviously, there's the whole switch between uh, the pilot and the rest of the show. But I'm sitting there thinking, the clothes that he disappeared in when the experiment went awry would have been invisible as well. And I understand it would have been difficult to see them, but he could have done something. He could have had a set of invisible clothing that he could have kept in reserve, or at least invisible underwear. Maybe. So maybe he had invisible underwear on. Maybe he could have made more invisible underwear. No, because he destroyed the machine. You're right, he destroyed the machine. Which just seems silly. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Turn the machine invisible, then everybody wins. (laughs) So this show, um, it, it didn't last long. It lasted, well, 13 episodes, if you include the pilot, and uh, was was then canceled at the end of the the summer, I guess, or the start of the of the fall. Um, he, we never found out uh, how he or if he regained his visibility. It just kind of ended. Um, but 
I mean, I guess just to summarize, what what are your your thoughts on on the Invisible Man? It's free on YouTube. Those are my thoughts on the Invisible Man. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not tremendously impressed either, although I, I wouldn't say that it's a bad show. It's I just, would. okay. It's just, you know, probably not worth watching, especially in today's, uh, you know, climate where there's a million other shows to watch, which are better, you know? Yeah. But the failure of the Invisible Man did not stop, uh, Harv Bennett and Steve Bochco from from trying to make this ideal work. And the very next year, they had another television show, which is unavailable. So we can't do an episode just on this show, but we can, you know, talk about it here. That was called The Gemini Man. And uh, it was a very similar premise. It was also based on, you know, The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. And in this case, he was like a secret agent or something like that who, uh, let me see if I can get this straight. He had a watch and he could use the watch to turn himself invisible, but he could only stay invisible for less than 15 minutes because if he stayed invisible for longer than 15 minutes, he would not be able to become visible again. So kind of a different take, you know, definitely I'm trying to do something different with it, you know, making it more of like a a spy show as opposed to like a scientist show, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think about the, the, the concept of that retooling? Eh, it, it's interesting that they f- would find a way to, you know, limit the superpower, basically. I mean, because that's what it is, is invisibility is a superpower. And so they came up with a way to have it be a limited superpower so that, I I don't know. I mean, it sounds interesting. It sounds arguably more interesting than just the straight-up treatment of the Invisible Man because the way that he became visible in the Invisible Man was to have the Mrs. Doubtfire mask, for lack of a better term. And, I, you know... It sounds. It sounds like maybe what they did was they they did go back and say, well, what didn't work, and if we're going to get another shot, how are we going to approach this? So, yeah, it's pretty intriguing. Yeah, and you know the thing about it is like it, it does re- definitely change sort of like the the overall arc of the show, and that it's no longer about finding a way to become visible again. Yeah, it's more about using this as a tool to, uh, you know, um, accomplish your goal or whatever, you know. Yeah. But you have that ticking clock. So, I mean, I don't know. I I, I do think it would have made for a better show, but uh, whatever. I guess we'll never know. We won't. And it also would have uh, removed another element of the Invisible Man, which is whenever the Invisible Man reveals himself to somebody... Uh, they're always, it always seems to be a reaction of like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Not absolutely brain melting. You know, this is, you have tread where angels don't dare go. What is wrong with you? Well, I guess, I guess it didn't really work either because that show only lasted 12 episodes as well. Uh, it was canceled uh, the very next season. And at that point, Bennett and Bochco were like, eh, I guess this isn't worth it anymore, huh? And moved on to bigger and better things like NYPD Blue. I will say, though, that 
this, you know, 12 episodes but in today's market, that's one possibly two seasons by this mm-hmm. point. So, mm-hmm. you know, hey, you know, who knows? Nowadays, this could be regarded as a modern Netflix classic. Yeah, you never know. There might yeah. be a campaign to save it and everything. Yeah. There would definitely be a campaign to save it. There's oh. a campaign to save everything. Everything. <laughs> Some things just shouldn't be saved, guys. You know? <laughs> just let it die. Let it happens. It die. Let's just <clears throat> let's just move on when we need to. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that makes shows like Firefly, uh, you know, uh, accessible to people is the fact that there's only like 13 of them. So, you know, sometimes that's for the best. Anyway, maybe not in the case of Firefly, but, you know. Well, it's been fun talking about The Invisible Man today, but this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. The Vulcans came. Maybe it's a Vulcan Thanksgiving. The Vulcans came to earth and we gave them corn okay no we gave them uh whiskey well i mean corn whiskey then ah all right Ah, there we go cool the orb i'd like to see the borg assimilate Ferenginar, and then they would become bankers you know i could see oh my gosh i could see drones yeah yeah the, the world's strictest <laughs> bank ever. Right. I'm sorry, you have not paid your loan. You will be assimilated. <laughs> the nanites go into you. Yes. <laughs> the ready room. Oh, man. I can see, instead of Kirk, it's Mike Ditka throughout the entire He's <laughs> just, like, chewing the whole time. Like, yeah. <laughs> Edith Killer must die. Oh, she's got to die. Commentary, Trek stars. The theme song, I mean, I, I guess it's cool. The thing that, that I was kind of struck by was the opening title sequence itself. Yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> it's literally that. like <laughs> all three of them are running for their lives. The 602 Club. But I loved the scene with um, Lucy and Tumnus when they first meet because mm-hmm. that's a very yeah. vivid description in the book. Um and I felt like they, they really nailed that in terms of the way it looked. And and the CGI was advanced enough so that um, James McAvoy really looked like he had fawn legs. and Literary Treks. Tell us about coming up with this, this story for the crew of the Enterprise. Where did it come from for you? And what were some of your inspirations for diving into these characters once again? Well, Troublesome Minds was such a book that it left me with, as if I I didn't quite finish. I'd come up with Troublesome Minds as an idea. That the the idea was what pushes Spock toward Colinar. Axonar, the official podcast. There is more to life than just get up, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed, repeat until dead. There's more to life than that. And I I believe that uh, that's the essential magic of Star Trek is that it says it it appeals to that, that urge to get up off the couch, walk out the front door and go see what's out there. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. 
You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all of the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail. Just look on the sidebar of the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. On Twitter, you can find the network at trek.fm. On Facebook, you can find the network at facebook.com slash trek.fm, where you'll also find the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click the Discussion tab on the menu bar. John, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, you can find me causing all sorts of problems on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, and you can also find me on another podcast called Words with Nerds that drops every Thursday on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, etc., etc. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, or you can find me here on the network doing Standard Orbit with Drew, or on my own website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, where I do Commentary Trackstars Off-Topic and Commentary Trackstar Babies with Max and, and Brandon. And you can email all of us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com, or you can find us all on Twitter at ComTrackStars. Before we go... We'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, and all of our other shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. John, what book do you have for us this week? Well, I have the book The Invisible Man. Yeah. By H.G. Wells, read by James Adams. Mm. On a freezing February day, a stranger emerges from out of the gray to request a room at a local provincial inn. Who is this out-of-season traveler? Aroused by trepidation and curiosity, the local villagers bring it upon themselves to find the answers. What they discover is a man trapped in a terror of his own creation and a chilling reflection of the unsolvable mysteries of their own souls. Sounds a bit different from what we watched, but, you know, that's cool. Nothing about computers or science experiments or the Pentagon. No. It's a departure. Yeah. Well, you can get this book for free since you listen to commentary, Trek Stars, and Trek FM. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the Network. Well, 
that's it for the Invisible Man. Um, maybe didn't quite uh, live up to the Mod Squad's high standards, but uh, <laughs> you know, um, there's a, a couple more Harv Bennett shows for us to look at, and hopefully uh, they'll they'll get a little bit better, right? Yes, I certainly hope so. <laughs> well, next week we're going to jump forward a couple decades to Harv Bennett's third show that we're covering anyway, I guess fourth show total, Time Tracks. 